Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Kira Keeling, CEO of Bruntwood Works. Kira's had a career spanning 16 years now with the same employer, the Northwestern Midlands-based commercial property investor and developer. And personally, Kira, it's very nice to chat to someone who's a little bit closer to home to me as well, also in Manchester. Thank you very much for joining me. Really nice to be here and thanks for inviting me, Nick. Now, we always get started in the same way. Let's hear about how Chapter One begins for you. So I decided um, to become a surveyor at quite an early age. Um, and it was really, in essence, directed by my brother, who also worked in, in property and had such a passion for real estate. Um, it wasn't necessarily a career that um, many females from particularly the, the West Coast of Ireland, where I'm from, really tended to get in, involved with. So I, I decided to become a surveyor. So I picked a course that was real estate in business and it was um, RICS accredited and I moved to Liverpool to to start my to start my journey. We we we, get, we had an opportunity to to chat before. Tell us tell us a bit more about your family and the, the setup and what influence they might they might have played at this very early stage. So I'm from a quite large but very close knit family. My mom was always the main driving force. Some might say the matriarch of the family. And she she was really quite influential with all of us and really pushed, um, you know, education, travel, diversity of thought. From her perspective, I think, you know, growing up and spending so much time in Inniskillen, in she really wanted us to have a, a very different life. And, you know, her key to that was always to make sure that, you know, she pushed education quite hard, you know, experiences quite hard and you know, all of my siblings are all quite driven and all have had, um, you know, quite diverse careers and, um, you know, in multiple in multiple disciplines. And me being the youngest um, of, of, of so many siblings allowed me to really look at them, you know, see how they progress their careers and in essence, <laughs> learn from their mistakes and, and their guidance. And they had quite a strong influence on my life and my life choices to, to some degree. What, what was it about real estate then that sort of got to you, given sort of the that introduction, that that, that sort of sage advice then from family members, what was it about sort of real estate that, that really sort of got you excited? I think when my brother explained to me, that, you know, the role that he was, he was doing, um, it was just the diversity of it. It was just the ability to to make change on the skyline and the fact that you know there's there's such a huge and um, there's such a huge opportunity to make a difference and you know look at you know not just a building but look at a place and and have such a large impact um on that and the career was just so it was so varied and, and so different and something i never really thought about before but when someone's so passionate about something and, you know, you could just sense that it, there was such a love for, for that career, it just sparked such an interest, you know, for me. And 
the more research that um, you know I did into what the possibilities would be, you know, becoming a general practice surveyor, it really just it, it allowed me to see that you know the opportunity that lay ahead and the fact that what I really liked about it at the time was it gave opportunities to potentially work anywhere in the world. And that was quite exciting for me. Um, I'm from a small place, as I said, on the west coast of Ireland. So actually the thought of being able to, you know, complete this degree and potentially work anywhere in the world, that was pretty exciting um, as a young 18-year-old. Post-graduation, mm-hmm. I, I, I assume you, you looked back and thought that was that was good advice. And it, uh, it was it was <laughs> definitely still something that was of interest after three years. Um, tell us about what, what happens thereafter. So the three years in university, you know, I really loved um, quite a varied, you know, syllabus and just really enjoyed different parts of it. But you you start to get a preference for, you know, what you, what you really, you know, what you really loved with it, you know, within the opportunity of, of, of the career. And I once I graduated, I started to look for, for, for jobs. Um, once once you graduate, you have to basically spend another two years working in practice in order to be qualified and um, to become chartered. So. I was, I was quite driven to become chartered really, really quickly. You don't have to, but you need at least two years experience to do so. So I, I looked for a role and um, I was living in Liverpool at the time and I came across Bruntwood and I just, I just, I just loved what the company was about. You know, you know, everything about the job advert um, really appealed to me. I went for four or five other um, interviews, got all five positions actually, but the job in Bruntwood was predominantly based in Manchester. And I thought, well, isn't this an opportunity to try something different? So I, I took the role, moved to Manchester, and I've been here ever since. So 16 years later, I'm still for the, working for the same company. Um, we will de- we'll spend definitely spend some some time about sort of how you've how you've been able then to keep sort of accelerating you know, whilst within within those sort of um, same four walls of that of that business. But for now, tell us a bit more about sort of that those earliest chapters. What were you involved in? So I started um, I started life as an asset manager and was given a portfolio of buildings. And in essence, you know, the role then was to really look at um, how do you drive maximum value from a building? How do you look at the building's life cycle? You know, how do you ensure that we invest in it appropriately and that, you know, the customer proposition was, you know, where it needed to be? And the business, even back then, was a highly customer-centric business. And I always thought that was quite appealing because, you know, 16 years ago, we were calling customers customers and in the market and in the industry, that was really unusual. They were tenants. And to this day, a lot of our competitors still refer to them as as, as tenants. And that, to me, was the point of difference. And I liked that and I liked it a lot. So I spent two years and got qualified as quickly as I could. So I was chartered within two years. I was chartered by the time I was 23. Um, And... That to me felt like a real achievement because I really, you know, I thought, okay, yes, now I'm chartered. And I started to look around the business and think, well, what, what are the other opportunities now? So to those who haven't got your, your CV in front of them, I'll, I'll give you a quick sort of timestamp now. So we've gone from university, we've chartered sort of in the most efficient possible way, but it's now 2007. Storm, you know, global sort of storm clouds are, are starting to, uh, to appear when did that start to bite and when did you start to feel that in the Manchester property market? So it really, it really became quite apparent in, in 2008 and ultimately that was when I had a change of role. So 
we we hunkered down as a business and just recognized that whilst always been a customer focused business, we needed to be even more customer focused because 2008 we knew we knew things were going to be really difficult. It was it, the writing was on the wall, and you know my role was to be as customer centric as possible and to ensure that where we had a customer base and we had a really strong customer base, but we had to retain them. Now, we went against the grain a little bit in terms of the strategy, or certainly I went against the grain with the strategy because a lot of other landlords at the time, we, we think of ourselves more as a property partner, but a lot of other landlords at the time um, decided to be, you know, be really quite, quite nervous. And we were very nervous, but the view was, you know, if people were in a lease, they were in a lease and they were going to stay in the lease. We thought about it in a slightly different way. We thought we are going to come out of this. We're a long-term business. We've been around for many years at this point. What we want to do is make sure that when we come out of this, we have a really loyal customer base. So I got promoted to, to head of customer retention and started to draft out a strategy around how we work with customers through the worst time for so many businesses. And that required planning and it needed to be you know, it needed to be commercially viable, it needed to be clever, but it needed to think about how did we put the customer first. And in some instances, what we had to do was recognize that certain customers just couldn't afford to pay the rent. They they were in too much space, they were struggling. So, you know, we 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 engaged in multiple strategies such as we downsized some customers, but we actually asked them to sign up for longer. So, you know, commercially we 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 had them, you know, basically with us as a as a partner for a longer time, but in less space. Because ultimately, they may not have been around had we not have done that. So we were working with them, getting under the skin of their business models, sometimes offering to, you know, sublet their space on their behalf and, 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 and really just trying to work with everybody that we could on our customer roster on the basis that if we were loyal to them at the hardest time, perhaps they'd stay with us for the future. And, you know, to this day, there are customers that, you know, when I was really active in that space, we still have in our portfolio and you know they were they're pretty grateful for for how we supported them you know throughout that time and um, there's something you glossed over there very very quickly about about being promoted into this this head of title for someone who's who's only really got about sort of three sort of three maybe four four years of experience that's that sounds a huge responsibility and in a, in a moment i'll ask i'll ask you about sort of how big a responsibility it was but you know, we like to do our our research on the um, uh, on the pod. So I have I've done a bit of routing around, and we've managed to mm-hmm. uh, spoke to two to two people who who knew you very very well at these earliest days. And the first thing they both came up with was was very very similar, and that was sort of how much responsibility Kira had and how influential she was, even at the very earliest stages of her career. Now that's lovely to say, but I am curious about sort of how that came about. Is that is that some is that responsibility? Is that something that you were given, or is it something you've taken? Is there anything in terms about about you you think that sort of might might have sort of garnered sort of the uh, having the trust from the business from from that very early stage? A little bit of both. So for me, I have always had an incredible work ethic, and that came through from my mom. You know, that was just driven into us always her, her view was you know you can have any career that you want but always make sure you're the best at what you do and work hard so I've always had a really strong work ethic so I worked really really hard 
you know, when I was studying for my APC, which is the two-year qualification, I was working, you know, long hours to really make sure that I made my mark. So I've always been hugely ambitious. I've always had a lot of self-drive and a huge passion for what I do. So I think because people probably had, you know, I guess witnessed that, you know, seeing quite early on that I was I was ambitious and I was driven and I was able to achieve, you know, being chartered at the same time as, you know, holding down, um, you know, a role and undertaking quite a lot. There was an element of, of, of trust placed in me. And, you know, sometimes I always think, do the job that you want to have. And to some degree, I, I did do that. And the philosophy that we've always had in this business is sort of shape your world. And that that's kind of what I did. I, I wanted that. So I wanted more responsibility. So I tended to work a little bit harder than others. I tended to want to ensure that I went the extra mile. And it, it almost became a natural choice to pass it to me. And well, you know, there's an opportunity for you. Do you want it? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. But it was a huge responsibility at such, you know, such a, a young age. It really was because I took on a, you know, a team at that point. So there was a lot of learning for me and a steep learning curve, particularly around leadership. Um, okay, well, let's let's spend a bit of time then chatting about that because it, it this does sound a massive leap then within your career, and, and this is what we love to hear about is is about acceleration, sort of learning you know, what's, what's going right and what's, what's going wrong. So tell us a, a bit more about sort of what you were learning at that particular chapter. I was learning that even through the most difficult times, there's always opportunities. And actually, if anything, you know, it's an opportunity to really stand out from the crowd, you know, to really recognize that if you go the extra mile, if you think outside the box, there's an opportunity to change things. And I was learning very, very, very quickly that, you know, when 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 you do the job that you want, you often get the job that you want because people look look at you and think, actually, she's doing it already. And I was making decisions. And I also think that's a huge, huge part of leadership is being able to make a decision. And a lot of people don't like to make decisions or worry about making decisions. But, you know, for me, I've always been a fairly decisive person and you know, making decisions for people, I find people then naturally came to me more often and sort of almost viewed me as that leader but you know in the background I was you know speaking with my family I was speaking with my brother who was hugely successful in his career in real estate at the time as well asking for advice you know reading a lot of books I spent a lot of time trying to understand people and you know what motivates people and you know a lot of offline work as well as just you know the hands-on practicality of doing the job Something you said there about sort of uh, people often saw you as as the leader. Did you see yourself as as the leader? Yeah, I probably did. I probably did because I I just like to affect change. I truly like to see things happen, and you know, I I really to some degree just felt naturally. I would t- you know take charge. I would naturally just make decisions. I would think about things. I I just had I just had such a passion for it for for, for the company and the role and the job and. I just loved what I did. And I think, you know, people often say that, don't they? You know, when when, when you love your job, you really, you really never work a day in your life. And I guess I've just been really, really lucky to land in a in a role and a career that I've that I've always really loved. But it's been really challenging. I'm I'm not gonna sit here and say that working, you know, throughout 2008, right through 2011 was probably, you know, four of the most challenging years of, of, of my life. Aside from sort of what else was happening sort of externally, 
What about internally? You mentioned about some of the, the lessons that you, you learned. You know, we often learn the, the, the biggest lessons when things don't go right. Mm-hmm. What mistakes did you make in that time? I make, you know, everybody makes mistakes and, you know, you, you make mistakes quite a lot. And I think for me, on the big things, I do tend to stress test them with a wider group of stakeholders and get buy-in. So I couldn't say, you know, I, I, I've made a huge of really large mistakes because I'm quite methodical in terms of how I work things through. But, you, you know, you, you make mistakes in how you approach things from time to time. You know, you, you learn how to work with different people, you know, that have slightly different personality traits. And, you know, you're evolving as a leader at that point. And I think for me, I really started to recognize that the power of an individual approach with people. Everybody has different drivers. Everybody has different motivations. And it was at that time I started to really understand and learn how to work with people slightly differently and probably for me historically i perhaps maybe would have been the one offering the solutions in retrospect what i've learned now is i prefer to really push to my team now don't come to me with a problem unless you're going to come to me with a couple of solutions so you know there was a huge there was a huge learning curve and we all make mistakes but you learn from them and i think that's the key isn't it it's to have a huge level of self-awareness and continue to to work on yourself not just your technical skills but you know your emotional skills and your 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 people skills your leadership style and your emotional and um, your emotional intelligence as well as everything else we talk about waves and we talk about sort of acceleration steep learning um uh, curves and this, no one could be listening to this and sort of underestimate sort of how steep a learning curve this this has been because of external matters, new role, team. There's a lot. There's a lot going on, but inevitably that ebbs and flows in terms of the the pace of that that learning. And inevitably people will go into a period of sort of consolidation where they where they're putting those lessons in into place. When would you say that did you notice that sort of your 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 learning or the pace of that that learning had altered? I think probably around 2011, perhaps, and I was getting slightly itchy feet around the fact that I perhaps had undertaken a lot, achieved quite a lot at quite a young age. And one thing that kept jumping out to me was my mum's words were ringing in my ears around traveling. So I, I actually asked for a short sabbatical from work. So I had three and a half months that I wanted to take off to go and spend some time traveling the world because... I really wanted to think about my life, get some perspective, you know, look at other, you know, other places and really reassess life. So I think having that that short break in my career, whilst it was a shock to the business when I asked for it, it was probably one of the best things that I ever did. So I had spread three and a half months off and I had the opportunity to really travel and reassess things, think about things. And, you know, when I came back, I had a complete, I had an even more ambitious view of where I wanted to be. And I was quite thoughtful with how I was going to put that plan into place. Okay. Well, Leah, take us through the breadcrumbs in terms of what, what this plan is uh, and how it sort of uh, unfolded. So I, I think for the three and a half months that I that I spent away, I you know I spent a lot of time seeing other things, you know how, how people do things in different countries, and actually you, you think, don't you? You think about what's your life plan, you know? And I missed, I really missed work. I really missed the people and the culture, and 
you know, I'd grown up in this business in essence. And then when I moved to Manchester, a lot of a lot of my friends that I'd made had been through work and it was that it was the missing of, of, of the company and the job. It just made me really quite reflective that this is this is somewhere I want to be. It, you know, it's a family owned company, but professionally managed and the values of, of, of the company were really quite well aligned to mine. And I knew after that sort of three and a half months, I was ready to go back. And when I came back, there was there was changes afoot. And, you know, I spoke to different people, you know, about what I wanted and my level of ambition. And in essence, I moved quite quickly thereafter when I came back to become the director of asset management. The, the, the business was looking for that role and it was almost earmarked for me on my return. So I happily accepted and, and started about, you know, a new chapter of, of, of looking across at that time then, you know, we still had, you know, Northwest and Midlands presence, but it was a much larger role with a quite a large team under me. So again, another quite big jump. Uh, let's put some, for those people who are less familiar with, where, with Bruntwood, let's, could you put some numbers against this? What's, what sort of size of portfolio would this have been and how many people were in the team? Oh, I mean, so rough and ready, it was about the the property portfolio was around maybe eight or nine hundred million back then. The team that I had sort of direct responsibility for was maybe, you know, line reports five, but the overall team probably about 15 or 20 across across the piece. And yeah, it was it was it was, it was a big jump. And, you know, my role then was to really look at how do we bring some of the processes and consistency around what I'd started my career in and, and drive that across all of those regions and start to really think about, you know, asset management from an entirely different perspective and really think about it at a portfolio level rather than, you know, and I mean portfolio is in the entirety of the portfolio rather than just at a building, you know, portfolio level. So historically maybe looked after five or six assets. We're now looking at probably about 79 assets across the patch at this point. So you know, it was it, it was a it was a really it was a really big step change and something I was really ready for at that point. So listen, sitting back and listening, you you tell this sort of story and these sort of transitions with with real confidence. At the time of returning back, did you did you ever have any doubts about whether you'd be able to to carry out that that role, make that step change? Absolutely, I have always had doubts. I think it would be completely you know completely wrong to say that you know at times you don't have elements of self-doubt and fear and you know you look at what's required of a role and think well I've not done that before or you know I'm going to need to do a lot of research to to do that or I need to think about how I get more experience so in the background you know I always plan I spend a lot of time working out what I don't know what I should know but in, in in essence I really did know deep down that I had to kind of keep continually pushing myself out of my comfort zone in order to grow. It's it's just how I'm wired. It's it's also what advice I was given by you know my family, you know by you know external mentors, and it's it's almost the culture here as well. Chris, who was the chief exec, you know at the time, was just you know very much about the growth mindset and challenging people and getting behind people and yeah I had doubts uh, you know I always have doubts I think I think you know everybody sometimes has imposter syndrome don't they yeah I think so I think so I think so 
but there's this these sort of these really big moves i think we'll be we'll have lots of our audience thinking god that was, that was those those are bold so Kira, we've been talking now about about these sort of these two really big sort of moves now from head of customer retention now to being sort of head of head of asset management with regards to the, the second role in, in particular what unique challenges do you think you you faced at, uh, at that time in your career i think back then you know a unique challenge probably was less it's probably quite a lot about the industry really rather than necessarily within within Bruntwood, but it was very, very unusual and to some degree still remains more unusual to have, you know, females working within the property industry, particularly, you know, as as surveyors. So I was quite a unique person within the market. I was, you know, probably younger, you know, a younger leader perhaps than some, you know, I was female and probably not, you know, not local. So there was a couple of things there that I probably felt a little bit uncomfortable with, which in hindsight now I look back and think, you know, I'm an individual and that's okay. But, you know, when you're slightly younger, sometimes they can feel like challenges because you you are the different person in the room. You look different, you sound different. But I've been really lucky, you know, you know, in Bromwell, we've been really well supported in that in that space. But the industry as a whole, it did it did feel a little uncomfortable at times to be very, you know, very, very different in the room. I wanted to ask you a question about Bruntwood, and Bruntwood is, is, as you mentioned, sort of a, is a is a family owned business. Mm-hmm. Are there are there any nuances then of working for a, a family owned business as opposed to a, a PLC? Oh, absolutely. You know, I've I, I've never worked for a PLC, but I I I can only I can only imagine because there there is a real there is a real value set that runs through this business and it come it comes from the family you really do you know think about this as even though it's professionally managed you, you really do get the the sense of we're, we're here to make a difference you know mike ogilvy who was the original founder you know was really all about we are not just building buildings we are not just you know, doing things for making money, we're in it for the long term, you know, we're going to be embedded within the places that we, you know, that we operate, and we're going to give back. And that played through into every ounce of the culture. And I think for me, it was it was one of the things that I just loved about the business was 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 that, you know, Mike in particular, um, just grew the business from nothing. There was such an element of just being so entrepreneurial and so so absolutely ahead of us, you know, ahead of thinking the fact that, you know, we were we were customer centric back when, you know, businesses were talking around tenants, et cetera. So it's been such an inspiring environment to work in. However, there are shadow sides to working for, you know, a family business as well. There are, you know, difficulties at times. There's there's strong viewpoints that sometimes it just it just is the way it is. But overall the positives outweigh the negatives. I imagine, and I haven't worked in a corporate PLC, but I imagine there's a lot can be maybe more structure, you know, a lot more sort of maybe, I guess, corporateness perhaps, whereas we've always tried to be fairly innovative and nimble, but equally try to be, you know, very professional as well. Um, I wanted to ask you something about, um, and this is going back a little bit about that, that relationship you have with uh, with customers. Yes. And gender to one side, you, you're a very young leader in in each of these roles you've you've taken on, when you are dealing with with the customers, is there an element of, of them looking around the room for you know, seeing right who's pulling the strings and 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 if so, do you, how how have you managed that as a young leader? Oh yeah, I came across that a lot in my career, not just with customers, but even with um, you know suppliers, contractors, um, you know other people, you know other more established agents, and I think ultimately it's just 
it's it's putting it aside. You you recognize that people are, you know, thoughtful around are you really making the decision? And for me, it was just it was just making sure that I went the extra mile to ensure that any queries or any piece of work that needed to be done was done. And therefore, you know, somebody could say, yeah, she, you know, she was good to her word. And, you know, I, I made the decisions. I was clear I made the decisions. And, you know, ultimately I tried to, you know, exceed expectations where I could. But sometimes it's hard when you recognize that, you know, people want to maybe deal with someone that's a little older or, you know, it, am I definitely dealing with the person at the right level, mm-hmm. et cetera. But we're not a hierarchical company and therefore, you know, titles were not always, we're not always telling of the level of influence that you had within a business. Just so for the, for the audience sake, give us a quick sort of timestamp. Where are we now in terms of um, what year are we in with regards to that career? Well, you know, in essence, I, I held that position right up until, you know, 2017. So in between, in between, ha- you know, having that position and, and not, if, if at the end of it, really, we're probably about 2017 now. Okay. So what's coming next? Well, what came probably just before 2017 was probably the single biggest life changing event that I had was probably in 2016 when my mum passed away. Very, um, it was, it was very sudden. It was a shock. Uh, it was unexpected. And, you know, that was a really interesting time for me. You know, I was, I was pretty successful in my career, but what I was trying to do at the time was, was balance this ability to go home every weekend um, whilst whilst she was diagnosed back to Ireland and then hold on a pretty full-time job. I'm a pretty private person around things like that, so I kept it to myself and I tried to ensure that, you know, I was I was I was keeping my high levels of standards of work, but equally I had a lot going on mentally um, you know, outside of the workplace. So it was very, very challenging for me. Did you, you mentioned about sort of uh, being private, did that ever cause sort of a detriment then in terms of sort of the uh, the career? Did you manage to keep, you know, to keep the, those sort of personal and business sort of life completely separate? I, 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 I did. And I think I'm not saying it was the right, it was the right thing at the time. It just worked for me. It was easier for me to put, you know, try to compartmentalize and put it in a box and I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the right thing to do there was a trusted circle who knew what I was going through but for me I I was trying to you know deal with something quite large at home and then recognizing that I had a job to do when I was in work and that separation to some degree allowed me to have some kind of mental headspace to maybe cope a little added on to that my dad got diagnosed with cancer at the same time as my mom actually it was in was actually within a week, but my mom passed away in 2016 and then my dad nine months later in yeah, in 2017. So there was a lot going on personally and I, I boxed it up and thought that was the best way to deal with it. As a business, as I as I roll on and I became a leader, I've recognized that actually that probably wasn't the best way to deal with it. When people have knowledge, they have understanding and they have empathy. And I think for me now, I try to learn from that and think I need to know more about what's going on in my team's lives so I can understand, I can be empathetic, I can recognize the challenges that people have. But yeah, that was a pretty tough time for me to try and hold down a incredibly difficult job, travel back and forward to Ireland, you know, for, you know, over, you know, basically in essence over a year horizon and deal with with the death of 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 both of my parents but I was 
lucky enough to have a supportive business. I can't underestimate this, but you know, how, how difficult that could have been sort of personally, but also as, as, as you rightly said, you know, you have more than kept the wheels on with this, with this career, you know, this, this career sort of has not slowed in this, uh, in this, in the slightest. So going back then to the career point of view, what's, what's happening now around sort of 2018? So what's happening now is I just threw myself into work. I, I took a lot of comfort from, you know, being in the office, seeing change. And I had such a passion for my job. And I thought, you know, I had everything ringing in my ear about my mom around, you know, really doing the best job that you could possibly do. And, you know, she often said to me that, you know, sometimes your greatest driving forces are absolutely not your greatest memories. And, you know, I, I was on a mission now to make her proud. She's passed, but I really wanted to, you know, I wanted a legacy that she could be proud of. She was pretty proud at that point, but she, you know, she didn't really know what was yet to come. And, you know, within sort of the next year, I was promoted to being, you know, CEO of the Workspace Leisure and Hospitality Division. But that wasn't through accident. That was through completely, you know, throwing myself into work, thinking outside the box, really, really having a passion for for change and perhaps an element of distraction. If I'm being really honest, well, there's something you didn't mention, Dennis, as to maybe one of the the contributing factors to to why you were selected for that for that role. And this this again, this came out sort of loud and clear about so when when I was doing my research, the people who I spoke to just you know, described you as a as a different sort of leader. And and this is this has almost been sort of compounded when when you then you pick up the the latest tag of of, of CEO. And they said you can't move around a building without Kira knowing every name, every person from the fr- you know, front desk through to the people in charge of these these buildings. And she makes time for everybody. And this, no matter if anyone's ever got a problem, if anyone's got uh, something they want to talk to about, an I an idea, she makes time to hear it. And they th- they thought this this was very atypical of someone then who was had this level of responsibility and this many people sort of uh, calling on her time. Do you recognise that? I recognize, I do recognise that. And I think, you know, it links back to, you know, my upbringing in that I, I love to be around people. People energise me and I like to understand what's going on in the business. And I, I really like to stay close to, you know, the team because, you know, I grew up in this business and I recognise what it's like to work in different positions of the business. And I recognize how important it is to recognize people when they're doing a great job. And I think for me, I've always recognized that actually, particularly from the customer perspective, it's the people on our front desks that make the difference. It's it's the people that make life easier for our customers and life easier for our colleagues. They're the real heroes. It's not necessarily the people in the, the leadership roles and I try to drive that through my leadership team as well, is just recognize, try and recognize people, say thank you, you know, know who people are, know what they do. We're still a company of, you know, of, of, a, of a scale that, you know, you can still do that to some degree. It gets harder. It gets harder at times. And particularly when we're, you know, on our recruitment drive and growing at scale. But I, I, I do really try my best to spend time with people and really understand the goings on within the business as best as I possibly can. How? Would you think of that sort of your sort of traditional sort of corporate structure and you think about it in yeah. a pyramid or a concentric circle, you're in the nucleus or right at the top. How do you make time for that? 
So how I make time for that is I schedule time. So we don't, we have an open plan working environment and I sit right within, the, I have no fixed desk. I sit right within the mix of the team. I listen to a lot of what's going on. We have a week, uh, bi-weekly huddles where I get the team together and, you know, people are at the top of that agenda. So we talk about people, you know, what's happening, what's going on on the ground, where might, where might we have challenges. I do many, many building tours. I walk the city. I check in in our buildings. I like to ensure that the standards are as, you know, high as they can possibly be. And I get out to the regions. You know, I was in Birmingham, I think, last week. You know, did a walk around, spoke to all the team. How are you getting on? I don't get as much time with people as perhaps I would like to, but I make it an effort to ensure that I don't just sit in the office. I get out and about, and I see people, and I speak to people, and you know, we spend time. We do road shows when we've got strategy days. We explain to people. We give people a chance to have Q and As. And even with COVID, when we couldn't see people face to face. We, you know, we held multiple sort of larger kind of Zoom meetings to say, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And then give people the opportunity to, you know, to ask questions. That's how I do it. Okay. Next question then. You've had, you've sort of described in sort of three really big leaps within this careers associated with these, with each of these sort of subsequent um, new roles. So head of customer retention, mm-hmm. then head of asset management, and now, and now CEO of Brumwood Works. Which was the steepest learning curve? CEO of Brentwood Works. Why? So at the start of the role, when I, when I was offered the position, I absolutely had imposter syndrome. I worried to death about all the things that I might not know. I constantly thought about what it is that I need to do. How do I not only keep the business running taking over but how do I take it to the next level how do I engage the team how do I drive decision making skills through the team how do we stay at the cutting edge how do we how do we be the best because I always thought first be the best and then be you know first you know if you can be the best at something you don't have to be the largest but you need to be the best and how do you drive that customer centricity through the leadership team so it was a huge challenge and you know, I read lots of books on it. I spoke to so many successful people and asked them what made them successful. And I, I, I you know, I, I thrive on that. I like to spend time around really successful people. And I used to question Chris quite a lot. You know, how did you do it? You know, how did you feel? What, what was, what was some of the things that you would advise me to do? And you know, I had a ninety-day plan. And I spoke to a lot of key stakeholders in the business and said, if I could fix anything in this business within ninety days what would they be? And yeah, you know, I, I was I was meticulous about planning, but it was a huge learning curve. And it still is. It still is. And if anyone tells you differently, you know, I, I disagree because every day I come to work and I learn something more. I, I, I'm constantly, constantly learning and evolving. So you mentioned then sort of the 90 day day plan. You know, if if I can jump now sort of three years and bring us right up to, right up to the present day. Looking back in your role as CEO, what would you describe as your proudest moments? Um, I think my proudest moment is we we set off on a on a strategy to really look at driving innovation through the workplace, and we had a plan to create some of the most forward thinking, innovative workspaces. And we recognised we couldn't do it all overnight. You know, buildings take time. 
you know, particularly in construction. So what we did is we we looked at, okay, we can do a couple of these and we can do them really, really well. And we called a project pioneer. You know, it was it was a plan to take some assets across all of our locations that had, you know, basically key principles and um, six key principles around technology, sustainability, art, biophilia, amenity and wellness and absolutely make those buildings first in class, best in class and, and, and something that ultimately, you know, that will sit on the skylines of these cities and sit as a legacy. And for me, we've achieved three of them in Manchester. We started with Blackfriars, uh, 111 Piccadilly and thirdly uh, Block in Manchester. We placed the order for Block in Manchester in the middle of the pandemic and it was probably one of the riskiest decisions I perhaps made but I would say it's the proudest decision I've ever made. I think it's one of our best and most forward-thinking workspaces we've ever produced in the history of our business and I'm really proud of it, really proud of it. So I'd say that's probably my proudest moment and I think my other proudest moment probably would be, you know, we just had a really frightening pandemic and probably the toughest 15 months of my entire career, but actually some of the best moments of my career. When when the news first hit around COVID, you know, I was absolutely terrified. It was uncharted territory. There was no point of reference for me to look back on and say, that's what happened. This is what might happen. You know, people were saying the office is dead. The cities are dead. You know, towns are dead. You know, people, people will not come back. People will work from home forever. And our purpose as a business is to create thriving cities. So there was an element of trepidation and, and, and fearfulness. But what we did was we hunkered down as, as a leadership team and we just got our thinking caps on. We, we, we started to think about what did we need to do to pivot? What could we do to ensure that the business could perform as best as it possibly could at a time where there was the highest level of uncertainty? And we adopted, you know, a sprint methodology to really, you know, test ideas, trial ideas. And rather than just go into protection mode, we went into what the future would look like. And we very much live by an ethic within, you know, within our, our leadership team of start small, scale quickly. We think about things, we do sprint methodologies, and if it works, we scale it. If it doesn't, you know, we put it in the cutting room floor and we revisit it later again. So it was just overcoming that fear and thinking outside the box and thinking, okay, what can we do here? Well, that's, that gives us a really, really good sense then if we're just sort of all the challenges and all, all the sort of successes then you've covered in this sort of 16 years. So I'm really grateful for you sharing it. If we can start now to, to look to the future. Yes. What's next? What's next for you to learn? You never stop learning um, ever as, as a leader. And I continue to look outside for inspiration. I was on a, you know, I was on a trip for the last two days, looking around to see, you know, what, what might be next for, you know, the future of, of workspace? What else might we want to bring into the business? How might we diversify? How do I, in essence, succession plan for me? How do I build my team to be the best that they can be? And how do we drive that through the business? So there's always so much that's that, that that's next. And I just think my mantra is just never stop learning. I'm an avid reader. 
I, I love to read. I love to speak to successful people. I love to, you know, just look at what's possible rather than what is. You know, we're looking at lots of different things now with the business. You know, how can technology support moving ahead of the curve? How can we look at things like AI, smart buildings? You know, what is the, what is really the future? But looking at it from a city level, not just a building level. And, and how can we as a business make a difference in the places that we operate? I want to continue to drive the growth from a mindset within the business and within myself. And yeah, you know, just continue to continue to evolve and, and and learn from people that are, you know, even more inspirational and absolutely successful in what they do. You mentioned, you mentioned success then. And I wanted to, wanted to ask you, you know, has your opinion on success changed over time? Definitely. Success, you know, isn't for me necessarily around a title or it's not about wealth. Success is about feeling that you, for me, is that feeling that I've made a mark, that I've done a good job, that I have helped inspire other people, that I have helped drive my team, you know, that I have time for people, including, you know, my family outside of work. It's about balance. It's about a healthy, not necessarily just a healthy body, but a healthy mind. You know, success is such a wide variety of things. And it's not a title. That's the one thing I would say for me. It might be for others, and I totally recognize that it can be. But um, as I've evolved, I think success success has changed. And it changes as you, as you evolve and you learn and you, you have different experiences in your life. And, you know, I'm not the same person now that I was when I started at 21. I'm a different person. Well, I think that's, I think that's a, a really interesting sort of point, Kira. So I wanted to say... Thank you very much for sharing this this story. It is a phenomenal story. And I've no doubt that everyone in our, our audience will, will be watching with, e- with even more sort of interest to see sort of what happens next over the next sort of five, 10 years as well for, um, uh, for you and for Bruntwood Works. So thank you very much for sharing the story. Thank you for having me, Nick. Thank you so much. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.